Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. I shared with you before uh, a little bit about a story when I first got married. And, and if you heard it before, just humor me because I, I think it really fits with where we're going today. So I couldn't think of a better one. So this is, this is what you get. Um, but but I remember we first got married, and obviously we had just purchased a little condo. I think we, we bought a 630-square-foot condo for like $275,000 in the big boom, right? And that was a mistake. But, but needless to say, we, we were trying to save money. And so, so there was a moment where I decided to make an executive decision for our home, and I went out and I, and I purchased a, a moped. Purchased a moped. Let me show you what it looks like. Looked like this. And I tried to get the most manly one that I could find, right? Had a couple of flames on the front, a little bit on the back. It was about $1,500, but it got like 75 miles to the gallon, and I only lived a mile away from church. And so it was perfect. I thought, man, this is going to be great. So long story short, it was on a Sunday morning. I jump on this little moped, and I head to church. Great morning at church. God showed up. Super powerful day. So I'm on my way home, driving down Washington Avenue in San Leandro, and, and I remember at a, I was at a stoplight, and I tried to ride this thing as cool as I can. I should have got one of those helmets where you couldn't see my face, but I had one of those little mushroom top helmets, and so I'm just riding. I'm trying to lean, lean a little bit, you know, just, just enjoying the, the stroll. And so i never forget this big old Lincoln Navigator pulls up, tinted windows, big old rims, and all the windows roll down, and people just start laughing at me. And Yeah, yeah, you can give me an awe. Come on, first service. Some empathy in the house. And, and I'll never forget, I was so embarrassed. But I played it off like, oh, whatever, way, saving gas. Look at you and your big old V8, right? And, but but it, really, it really affected me on an emotional level. I went home, I'm like, man, I, I'm not really sure. I love riding the moped. It's, it's fun. It's, you know, it's quick. It's easy. But um, I, I think I need to, to up my game a little bit. So... I got a little bit distracted, and I went and I purchased this one. This is my exact bike. I purchased this R6, Yamaha R6. 7,000. I even got Pastor James to buy one. I'm like, come on, man. We need to, like, do this together, right? And so I rode that for a little bit. Then we connected with some, some other, you know, other riders, and I started to realize they had even bigger bikes. And so I felt, even on this R6, like I was, compared to some of these other guys. So I got a little bit antsy, and I just thought, well, you know, maybe I just need a little bit more. So I, I traded this one in. I went and got this one. This was a 750, a Gixxer 750. Beautiful bike. Amazing. But as you can see, I, I started to get distracted from the original purpose. Right? The goal was to save money. The goal was to save on gas. But I continue to have this need. I continue to, to feel this distraction uh, from the original goal to upgrade. And then God brought me to my senses. I had a kid, and now this is what I drive. Boom, a Yaris. 40 miles a gallon, baby. But, but, but the truth is, is, is on this journey, I'll never forget this. It was one of my biggest life lessons is that here I, I, I had this original goal, this original vision, this original purpose. And it was to save, it was to, to help position us, to build us uh, financially. And on this journey, I got distracted from the original intent. And, and I, I, this is my story, but I, I think all of us have a story like this. 
right? I, I think uh, some of you guys got into a relationship. You remember in the beginning, it was all about, uh, it was all about this sense of what can I give? I just want to make everything special. I want, I want, I want that, that individual just to feel so loved and you're, 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 you're thinking about your date nights and you're planning everything strategically and everything was about serving. just want to serve you. Right, and all of a sudden you get into the relationship a little bit and, and the tide begins to change and it goes from I just want to serve you to uh, what can I get from you? Right, we, we kind of veer off the original intent, and it, there's this sense of, of, hey, how come you're not fulfilling my needs? Well, how come you're not making it special for me? And we start to veer off from this posture of serving to this posture of selfishness. I think this happens with us spiritually. I think in our relationship with God, there's the moment where we, we cry out to God, and we're like, Lord, please save me. God, I, I need you. I love you. Um, I, I just want to be with you. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And there's this moment where we just want him. And then we get on into the journey, and once again, it's now, God, how come you're not moving fast enough? God, you need to come through. Lord, how come this isn't working? Lord, and, and we move again from, Lord, I just want you to what can I get from you? I, I think this happens at Costco, like every single <laughs> week for us. Like Costco is positioned so strategically. So many times I've gone in because that's where we buy our meat because it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot more effective to, to go to Costco. And so, so many times I'm going to get chicken. That's it. I'm running in. I'm getting a big old, you know, three pack of chicken and I'm out. But then they put all of these, you know, gadgets before the necessities. Like, like the whole center aisle of Costco Livermore. It's like you walk by and you're like, I'm going to the meat. I'm going to the meat. Seven dollar jeans. Right, and you just kind of make a little beeline, just, I don't like those. And then you're moving, and then you see like a, like a tool kit. Man, I think, I, do I need some tools? Right, and then you're walking, you're like, you see a knife set. Man, our knives are beat up. Grab one of those. By the time you leave, you've grabbed like three or four things, completely got off track, completely distracted from the original goal and, and intent. In other words, let, let me say it this way, is you, your distraction from the original intent starts to oppose the vision that you originally had. And distraction is just, it's just not a fun place to be in. Distraction, uh, there's moments where you could be distracted in a positive way, but for the majority, it's, it's not like that. It, it, it can be really painful to be distracted. It can be really painful to get disillusioned from the goal that maybe God has placed before you. In fact, the French used to take this to a whole nother level. One of the reasons how we got the word distraction was from a French mode of torture. Let me show you. Uh, it was literally called distraction. And so they, they would tie a rope to each limb, and then they would tie the limb to the horse, and then they give a horse a nice little spanking, right? And it would just pull you in every single direction. And, and I want you to get this picture. A lot of times distraction is simply a pull in an unhealthy way. It's, it's a pull in an unhealthy way. A pull that you were never designed to be pulled in. It, it, it's a moment where you find yourself, you, you may have so much vision, but because of the distraction pulled in every direction, you find yourself stuck, immobilized, not able to move forward and to pursue the original thing that God had put before you. And I, I think Nehemiah has, has a great way of helping us understand how to defeat 
distraction because Nehemiah had to undergo this himself. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for those of you guys who might have missed a week or two. Uh, Nehemiah is serving uh, in the palace of King Xerxes. Uh, the, the, the Babylonians overthrew the people of Israel. The Persians overthrew the Babylonians. And now Nehemiah has found favor and is in the palace. He's not in charge, but he's in the palace serving as the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer just simply uh, was the guy that would taste the king's drink before uh, the king would partake. Because just like today, some of the greatest opposition came from within the kingdom. And so, so Nehemiah, he's got favor. He's got some wind behind his back. Um, he's, he's not living his perfect life, but he's living a decent life. And he gets word that Jerusalem is in ruins. He gets word that his homeland is, has been destroyed. That worship has been established, but the walls have been torn down. The gates have been burned. And God really begins to break his heart in such a way. He begins to cry out to God, and God gives him a vision to rebuild. Well, as, as time goes on and Nehemiah uh, is, is praying through, he's trying to figure out what is his next steps going to be. And so when we see in chapter 1, God gives him a vision. And then in chapter 2, we see God so graciously gives provision for the vision that he had spoken to Nehemiah. Nehemiah finds favor with the king, and the king says, hey, any resource you need to build, whatever you need, you are going with my authority. You are going with my blessing. The wind is to his back. Now, you know Nehemiah had a big vision because it was about 1,000 miles on foot from the palace to the rubble. And so, so we see this beautiful picture for Nehemiah. Chapter 1, vision. Chapter 2, provision. Chapter 3, Nehemiah gets the people of Jerusalem to actually buy into the vision. And so you have this beautiful conglomerate of, of priests working with commoners and, and everybody doing their part. There was momentum. There was hope. Like there was this sense of excitement. And that was chapter three. But how many of you guys know chapter one, amazing. Chapter two, incredible. Chapter three, unbelievable. But there's always a chapter four. See, God gives vision. God gives provision. But then we can't forget the opposition. And so in chapter 4, we're introduced to a couple of guys by the name of Sambalot and Tobiah. Sambalot and Tobiah. Now, Sambalot was a Persian politician that was occupying the region of Jerusalem. And so, so basically, uh, when the Babylonians uh, overthrew Israel and the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, well, then territory just became wide open. We don't know if Sambalot was placed there intentionally or if he just said, hey, I'm just going to occupy this area, this region, and take it for myself. But this is what we do know, is that he was exploiting the Jewish people. See, the, the walls had been torn down, the gates had been burned, and what that meant is the enemy and exploiters could come and raid them whenever they felt like raiding them. They could come and you know, uh, 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 pillage their, their food, their resources. And, and Sambalot was profiting off of this whole thing. So the, the last thing that Sambalot wanted was these Jewish people to rebuild, to grow, to expand. Because you know, they have heard of the days of old when Jerusalem was that you know, incredible city. They've heard of the God of Israel. And by no means necessary did they want to mess up their little parade by seeing these guys come back to life. So what did he do? He did whatever he could to bring discouragement. He did whatever he could to try to oppose the work that God had set Nehemiah and the people to do. And I think this is really interesting because 
Uh, for, for Stambolot, uh, he, he wanted to make sure that they were broken. He wanted to make sure that they were unhealthy. He wanted to make sure that they were sick. He wanted to make sure that they, they were, were unable to gain any strength. But the difficulty for him was he was outranked. It's because the king had already given Nehemiah permission. So it's like, man, what do I do? I, I can't really do much except try to get you to forfeit the vision. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do whatever I can to distract you from the original intent of why you came here. You know, I think it's important because the enemy knows a couple of things. That The enemy knows that he may not be able to take your salvation. He may not be able to take your call. He may not be able to take your gifts. But he's going to do whatever he can to leave you and to position you in a posture of distraction so you forfeit building what God has called you to build. And one of the ways that, that he does this, he does it very subtly, but I think one of the greatest ways he tries to distract us, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. He tries to distract by discouragement. He wants to distract courage from your soul. And he uses a bunch of tactics. And we're going to see here in Nehemiah that he kind of uses a bunch of different ways to simply wear you out. Because he knows that if he can get you distracted, he could get you discouraged. And if he could get you discouraged, you'll find yourself stuck and he'll have the advantage. And so there are a multiplicity of ways that, that he does this. But let me just give you a few that we see from Nehemiah. One of the things that he's going to attack to discourage you, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, is your value. Yeah. It says Sambalot was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers. So he's trying to, you know, flex his muscles a little bit. He's got a little bit of military. He's got all of his friends, and he's a very loud voice. He's that guy, right? Hey, that guy. What are you doing? What? Come on, that guy. And he says, what does this bunch of poor feeble Jews think they're doing. This word poor and feeble in, in the Hebrew, it means to be withered and miserable. Almost like, like a flower that's been cut and is fading away. Like, what, what, are you serious? See, a lot of these guys were in their 70s and 80s. And he's looking at them and he's saying, oh, you really think that you're going to be able to like you're going to be able to build? How you really think you have something to offer? You know, when we first came to Fountain, God told us two things, that we were going to be multicultural and intergenerational. So can I, I just tell you, listen, if you, are, if you are in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, listen, I know that everybody says in our culture today that 55 is the age of retirement, but that's not in the kingdom. And listen, so listen, if you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, we need you. Listen, we need your wisdom. We need your experience. Like, you have something to offer. You have a seat at this table. Like, we need what God has placed inside of you. The enemy always tries to go after our value. If he can make you feel un, like, like you're not worth anything, then, man, he is doing a great job at distracting you. He is doing a great job, and you are on your way to discouragement. What do you have to offer? You're with you. You have nothing to bring. It goes after your value. Second thing, he goes after your freedom. He says, will they restore it for themselves? 
<laughs> like, you really think that you're going to be able to live a life of freedom and protection? Like, you, you actually think that you're going to be able to provide something that's secure? Like, you really think that's going to work for you? Like, you're going to be able to live in liberty? Come on, how many times have you attempted to, to step out in what God has called you to do? To step out in areas where you know that it was God's perfect will and plan for you to be free in certain areas. And you hear that voice saying, you'll never be free. Like, like go back. Let me, let me remind you uh, that you weren't able to win before. You weren't able to win the Babylonians. You weren't able to win the Persians. Well, you think you're going to win now? You're stuck. This is your lot. Look at the walls, you poor, feeble people. This is your lot. You'll never have freedom. The enemy can attack your freedom. And if he can get you to doubt that God is able to bring you freedom, you are distracted. Third thing is he goes after their faith in God. He says, will they sacrifice? Like, hey, it's going to take more than a prayer to build this thing. Like, look around. Look how crazy it is. Now, now you may have your little church service going, right? You got your little fountain church. It's so cute. But look at these walls. What has your God done for these walls? I mean, come on. Like, you really think the God that you're worshiping is doing something? I mean, I would think, you know, I see you guys worshiping all the time, but I still see these walls destroyed. You might want to sacrifice to a different God. You might want to change your plans up a little bit. And I think this is such a great picture for us because many times we think that upon salvation that everything goes to perfection. Because worship has been restored in Jerusalem, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think so many times we, we, we find ourselves in a place where we come to the Lord and, and we think salvation equals perfection. Yeah, positionally, perfect in Christ. Positionally. But then I think Nehemiah is a great picture of how the Holy Spirit works in our life. That, man, after we confess Jesus as Lord, he places his spirit inside of us. Worship is restored. Then the Holy Spirit begins to rebuild the walls that have been torn down in our lives. And a lot of times God works through process. It's not, it's not all done in a moment's time. But he goes after their faith. If Satan can get your faith, he's won a great victory. You have been distracted and your courage is no more. Uh, then he goes on to attack their hope. Hope is huge. He says, will they finish up in a day? I mean, come on, let's be real. These, this rubble has lasted 140 years. 140 years, these walls have been in ruins. And now Nehemiah comes on the scene and is bringing some hope, bringing some vision, uh, so, some excitement that maybe potentially God could reverse these ruins. God could reverse these ruins. But he wants you to look at the time. He wants you to look at the space. Look how long you've been this way. Look how long it's been this way. Like, like, you really think that something is going to change now. Oh, like, oh, now God's going to come through for you? It's so crazy. I, I remember there was a time, and, and I remember when I first, when I first came here, there, there, was, there was a moment where I was, I was going to get some flyers, and I remember somebody telling me, flyers will never work. Like, we've tried flyers a bunch of times. And I was like, yeah, but it's a new season. 
And, and, and we, we saw, man, so many people come to our church that, that year as a result of flyers. And so the enemy just always wants to bring up stuff that doesn't work or it hasn't worked and, and try to discourage you, try to rob your hope of the potential and the possibility of what God wants to do. And so he wants to attack your hope. If he can get your hope, you're distracted. And then lastly is this, he, wants to, he goes after your potential. He goes after your potential. It says, will they revive these stones out of heaps of rubbish, burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. This is kind of the sidekick, right? Tobiah was like, yeah. And what they're building, even if a fox goes on that thing, it's going to break down. Uh. <laughs> like he goes after the potential. He, he's saying, listen, what you're, look at what you're working with. Listen, I know that there are some of you that are stuck today because the enemy has lied to you. And so look what you're working with. You don't have much to work with. Why are you even trying? Like you, you think there's actually potential for you to, to grow, to maneuver, to climb? No, no way. Like you, like you think you're going to build with that? You think you're going to build with, with, with rubble? Come on, there, there are so many sermons in this right now. And the enemy just constantly comes. Remember how this happened. Remember how you got here. Where was your God? Well, what type of skills do you have? Like, seriously. You know, a lot of these guys, they were perfumers. It's like, hey, what are you going to do? You're going to spray the walls? You're going to make them smell good? So they were perfumers, and now they're, they're, they're builders. They're going to try to do something with some brick and mortar. And the enemy just comes and mocks and says, look at your marriage. What are you, what are you really working with? Like, look at your purity. You forfeited it all so much already. You, you've let it go so much. Like, do you really think that there's something to work with in your life? Like, your finances, they're in complete disarray. Like, you, you don't have anything to work with. It will always go after your potential. Because, listen, ladies and gentlemen, it is hard to work and to, to run with vision when you're surrounded with all of this garbage as you face an impossibility in front of you. It's hard. In fact, it was discouragement that kept the people from entering the promised land. I mean, it was a moment where 10 discouraged people infected the entire nation of Israel. 10 discouraged people. And what did they say? They said, no, we can't, we can't enter the land. No, there's no way that we can do this. See, the enemy would love to get your eyes off of God and onto you. Like, that's the ultimate distraction. Let me get your eyes off of God, and let me get your eyes onto you. Because if there's one thing that the enemy does not do, everybody lean into this and listen to me. The one thing that the enemy does not do is equate the God factor into the equation. He doesn't say, I, hey, I know you're not working with much, but God. Hey, listen, I know it doesn't look like there's much hope, but God. Hey, I know that, you know, you're a little bit feeble and you're a little bit fragile, but God. He does not equate the God factor. Why? Because his goal is to discourage you away from that, to get your eyes off the original purpose, to get your eyes off of the one who can do all things. And he does it by means 
of discouragement. So the question is, what do we do? Because he's sitting here, he's looking at these guys, and he's like, they're starting to build. They're actually making some progress. I got I to gotta get in. And this is even a little bit more sad. This is a little bit more heartbreaking, a little bit more difficult, is that, that even some of the people in Nehemiah's circle were partnering with the enemy. So they were trying to figure out, man, why are people getting discouraged? Why are they getting tired? Because there were some people, as a result of their marriages and money, were in partnership with the enemy trying to discourage and permeate everybody else. So what do you do when you're in a position and you're facing an onslaught of discouragement? Well, I think Nehemiah is going to help us with this. And if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. Number one is this, is when building, expect accusing. Just expect it. I think sometimes as followers of Jesus in the West, we just got to be realistic and understand that, listen, it's going to be tough sometimes. When building, expect accusing. Like the enemy is not just, you're just not going to live a chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three your whole life. There's always going to be a chapter four. It's all throughout the narrative of scripture. I mean, look at Jesus. He gets affirmed by the Father. The Spirit of God comes upon him like a dove. The Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then the wilderness, where the enemy saying, accusing. Well, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn this bread, this, this, these stones into bread? We see Elijah just gets done calling fire down from heaven, consuming the prophets of Baal. And then one accusation from a woman by the name of Jezebel throws him into a whirlwind of discouragement. One threat. Because it wasn't about a woman, it was a spirit behind that that wanted to, to wreak havoc, that wanted to get his eyes. So much so, the Lord asked Elijah, why are you here? How did you get here? I never told you to come here. I was distracted by discouragement. And the Lord encouraged him, and, and he revived. There's always going to be, ladies and gentlemen, opposition. In fact, I love what Paul told Timothy. He said it this way. He said, yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This word persecution, a lot of times it gets a little bit diluted in, in our language. It literally means to chase or to be hunted down, to be hunted. And, and I, I want you to get this picture because there's no possible way that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ, there's going to, listen, there's no way you're getting out of this. It's just not. If you're building, expect accusing. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, he said, God had a son without sin, but God did not have a son without trial. Like, it's just, it's, it's part of it. Like, I mean, think about this. A lot of the ways that the enemy comes at us, a lot of the way that he infects or, or induces this aspect of discouragement is through words. It's through people's vocabulary. Because I don't know about you, but I understand that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that that's not our battle that our battle is against principalities and wickedness in high and heavenly places. However, even though God does not, uh, even though our battle is not against flesh and blood, the enemy still uses flesh and blood to accomplish his purposes. He uses people to open up their mouth and to spew discouragement. And I don't think it's really an accident that that tends to lead to a lot of discouragement in our life. is worse from other people because that's what the enemy's name is. He's called the father of lies. He's called the accuser of the brethren. I remember when I first came to Fountain, 
when we were making the transition, there was a gentleman that just laid into me, and he was just spewing it out. It'll never get off the ground. You'll never be able to build this thing. You're too young. You don't have enough wisdom. You don't. I mean, just, I mean, just unleashed on me. And man, it hurt for a moment because everything that he was saying, I was feeling. I was like, man, maybe, maybe, but God. But we had a word from God that said, I'm sending you here. Trust me. Go with me. There's a but God. He never equates God into the equation. Never equates God into the equation. So, this is what I want you to know. Jot this down if you're taking notes. It's important that we understand words because words are not syllables spoken, but seeds planted. Words are not only syllables spoken, but seeds planted. And when people are hurling stuff at us, man, that stuff hurts. And it's easy. Listen, the enemy is looking for some of those seeds to take root in our life. Because a lot of times we are distracted by discouragement because we bought into deception. A lot of times we're distracted by discouragement because we've bought in to deception. He's not just trying to get into your head. He's trying to get into your heart. He's trying to plant a seed. Because if he can get into your heart, if he can distract you with discouragement, and he can plant these seeds of discouragement in your heart, you're going to start to build a different wall. And it's not the one that God has called you to build. You'll start to build walls of bitterness and insecurity. Walls of fear and busyness, performance-driven, identity-confused. You start to build all of these different walls. It's, it's expected that he's coming to accuse. You know, I, I was watching this movie, Gladiator. I had one of those, those, those guy nights the other night. I was by myself. Went into to my living room and said, no, I'm going for a Gladiator, Marcus Aurelius, Let's go, right? Let, let, let me show you a picture. It's interesting. Um, this is a moment where he's put in a very tough position. He's battling like the, the strongest guy that they have to, to bring out, and Marcus just whoops his behind. And at, at the end, in, in these games, what would happen is you see this grandstand in the back, and everybody, the crowd is just influencing what's happening on the field. And, and you see... You know him take this, this axe, and Marcus Aurelius is a man of integrity, so he knows he's not going to do it, but he's waiting to see what, the, what Caesar, what call Caesar is going to make, and, and the guy's laying on the ground just helpless, and he's getting ready to take off his head, and, and the crowd is just saying, kill him, kill him, kill him, right? And then, and then Caesar looks, and he, and he gives a thumbs up or the thumbs down. Thumbs up, he lives, thumbs down, he dies. See, the enemy knows that if he can get in your grandstand, that those seeds and that tree can continuously bear fruit over a long period of time because you start to get consumed with wounds. And then the whole, you're getting ready to make a decision, and the grandstands, kill them! You got these people in your mind. Sometimes it's, it's people that you can picture. Sometimes those people, it could be your parents. It could be your father in your grandstand. You'll never make it. It's not going to work. 
right? It, it, could, it could be just whispers and lies from the enemy that you believe that when you're getting ready to make a decision, you're ready to, to cut off this distraction, and, and, and then those, those whispers come in like, no, it's not going to work. Your ax isn't sharp enough. Look at what you're working with. You're not valuable. The enemy knows that if he can get into your grandstand, you will start, listen, he will start to build walls of division. He will start to build walls of isolation in your heart. He will build walls of self-sufficiency. He will build all of these dysfunctional walls, impurity, walls of medicating, because you're trying to, 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 you're trying to survive. And he just, he just wants to be that voice in your grandstands that affects all your decisions, that causes you to be distracted, that causes you to be discouraged, that leads you to a place of deception. So all I'm saying is this, don't be ignorant of his schemes. If you're building, expect accusing. Expect it's coming. It's coming. Number two, if you're taking notes, shot this down. When dealing with distraction by discouragement, you want to be prayerful and practical. Prayerful and practical. Let me show you this passage of scripture. Uh, Nehemiah said this, hear, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I love this portion of Scripture. It's one of my, my favorite parts, and let me tell you why. It's because in this moment, Nehemiah is choosing to do something, right? He's, he's prayerful. He's saying, God, uh, you're going to be my defender. You're going to be my protector, Listen, when God ceases to be your defender and protector, you are and, and you and me get ourselves into a lot of trouble because we try to take conflict into our own hands. And sometimes battles that don't even belong to us. Like Nehemiah said, I'm not letting all of this on the outside get on the inside of me because this is not, this is not my battle. I'm simply doing God what you put in my heart. He's provoking you to anger. Like, God, this is about your fame. This is about your glory. I'm not receiving any of this stuff. In other words, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Nehemiah said this. Nehemiah said, instead of taking it to heart, I'm going to take it to God. If we could just get this down, it would save us so much trouble. And I'm, I'm one of those guys where, like, I take things to heart a lot. And so I have to guard my heart many times, not in an unhealthy way, but just to know that, listen, sometimes things that are coming out of people's mouth, that's not my battle. That has nothing to do with me. That's between them and God. That's their own brokenness and their own issues. And it's easy sometimes to, to take things personal when really the fight isn't with you. It's really not. I, I love Matthew chapter uh, 5, the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are you when people hurl insults at you, persecute you, and say all types of untrue things about you, Jesus said, for my name's sake. And I love this word blessed. It's, it's this over and abundance of God's provision, but that's not all that it means. It means to grow in length, to grow larger, to expand, to increase. So I would propose to you today, just like we see in the early church, wherever the enemy is chasing you down and hunting you down with words, with accusations, just like he did the early church. What happened to the early church as he was hunting them down? They grew. They, the church expanded. And so I would propose that, listen, accusation is an opportunity for your expansion. 
Whenever the enemy is hurling insults, trying to get you distracted by discouragement, it's because, listen, you are in a posture for growth. You are in a posture for God to lengthen your territory, expand your horizons, and increase your capacity. It's huge. And that's just not like preaching like good. That's like truth. Like, listen, Nehemiah doesn't lash back. Let me show you what it would look like in in Nehemiah's moment. This is what it would look like. I'm going to, you'll never, you little furry. And Nehemiah's like, I can't even hear you. He's like, I'm seated in heavenly places. And the Lord has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I'm just not letting that what's on the outside get in on the inside. See, a lot of times it's not about what we're going through. It's about lies that we believe that have us distracted and stuck. That's the truth. But then he gets practical. Look what he says, and I'm running out of time. So he goes, but when Sanballat and Tobiah heard the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to, to be closed, they were very angry. The enemy is stirred now. He says, and they plotted together to come and fight against them, against Jerusalem. And listen, this is it. And to cause confusion. Like the enemy's, like one of his number one tactics is to bring confusion. If he brings confusion, he brings division. And division means you have multiple visions, not the one that God has given you and given a community. But I love what Nehemiah did. Look what he did. He prayed, right? God, you're my defender. You, listen, we're trusting you. Pray to God, but then he posted a guard. Everybody say pray. pray. Everybody say post. So, so he prayed. There was this, 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 this moment where he's saying, God, you are a defender. You are our protector. But then he got real practical and said, but I'm still going to post a guard. Now, now, this is interesting because none of these guards were, like, qualified to protect anything. But that's where the prayer comes in. It's like, God, I'm going to do my part and put this feeble guy right here. I know I'm going to give him a knife. That's all we got. But we're going to pray and know that you're going to supernaturally move with what we have to, to, to bring to the table. But we're going to do our part. We're going to pray and we're going to post. See, sometimes we just want to pray, but we don't want to post. And then sometimes we want to post, but we don't want to pray. And I think sometimes we avoid the practical because many times it doesn't seem practical. Like, consider your life. And then you hear me say something like, you need to open up your Bible. You need to pray. And you're like, my life, look at the rubble. Look at what I'm facing. Look at the decisions that need to be made. Look at what I'm dealing with. You want me to read my Bible and pray. It's practical, but it doesn't seem practical, and so we don't do it. And we just kind of, you know, hope that things are going to turn or we're going to, but we're, we're not being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And you think for Nehemiah, I mean, man, this hindered progress. Like you... We need people to build. Now I got to have people fight and build? Like, this is exhausting. This wears people out. But God was doing something in them. God was building a faith in them. God, had, God, God needed them to not just build a wall. Listen, it's never been about a wall that's brought protection. Those walls have been torn down. It's been about the sovereignty of God combined with our responsibility and a response to him. That changes the game. And, and so, so, so what I'm saying to you is this. Well, what I'm saying, just, just lean in here. Um, you you got to be prayerful, but you also got to be practical. 
Listen, uh, you got to post a guard. If you're dealing with addiction, be prayerful, but then get practical. You got to post some guards up. Right, if you, if you if, listen, if you struggle, let me just say this: if if you if you are hurting people, if you are a sambalot, and you're hurting people, listen. Practical, you say, all right, well, I'm going to stop doing that, and and uh, I know they've kind of offended me, and I know I've offended them, but you know, I'm just not going to do anything. No, the Bible says you need to go and make that right. You can be prayerful, but you also need to be practical, right? Because that's the the full counsel of God. And so, for, so, so you got to be prayerful. You got to be practical. And the last thing is this. The last thing is this. And, and we're going to wrap up. You need to remember your God and remember your why. You need to remember your God and remember your why. Let me read the passage of scripture to you. It says this. It says, and I looked and, aro- I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord. Can I just say that to you today? Remember the Lord. Like, like, take your rubble and put it in the hand of God. Just visualize that, that picture. Nothing is too big for his hand. Nothing is out of his reach. Remember the Lord. Remember his great mercy. When it's tough, remember what he endured for your salvation, the writer of Hebrews says. Like, when you feel like quitting, remember the Lord that in all of his mercy suffered the most horrible death that you would have life. So it is my honor to lay my life down as a living sacrifice in light of the Lord. Remember the Lord. And remember your wife. And this is so much bigger than you. Like fight for your brothers, your, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. In other words, there's so much more at stake. You can't quit. You can't stop. Listen, we don't have the luxury to be stuck in discouragement. There's too much on the line. And sometimes you need people in your life like Nehemiah to remind you to remember your God and remember your why, whatever that is. Some of you guys were like, I don't have wives, daughters, sons, and homes. I don't have that. I get it. But God has called you to something. God has put air in your lungs and has called you to make disciples of all nations. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have vision, you have mission, you have something to shoot for. It's so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger. But we need people to remind us sometimes. So this is what I would encourage you. This year, as we head into this new year, just commit to make Sundays and groups a part of your rhythm. So you can be reminded every single week of your God and your why. You know, there's this guy by the name of uh, Sir Thornhill. Let me show you a picture. He painted St. Paul's Cathedral in London. There was one moment he was, he was painting one of these, these masterpieces and he stepped back on the scaffolding to look, to, to view the work. And, and his, his partner realized that one more step, he would have fell off the edge to his death. And you know, an artist is really focused on what they're doing. And so he's just slowly kind of stepping back. So his friend reaches out, grabs a paintbrush and smudges the entire painting. And then Sir Thornhill leaned forward to try to figure out, what are you doing? And he saved his life. Listen, sometimes we we need people in our life that can see from another perspective and can kind of mess up our painting and say, hey, no, 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 there's a much bigger picture. There's a much bigger picture. You almost died, bro. But I want to remind you of your God and your why.